This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter Election 23 Policy Playground. Roll up, roll up, get your free cancer drugs. Roll up, roll up, get financial literacy here. All you have to do is vote for me. No me, no me. The polls, Brent Edwards, are now showing numbers that mean things are probably going to start getting dirty about now. And why? Because Labor is so far behind? It, what? That's going to prompt them to be play dirty politics, is that what you Exactly. Said? Yeah, I'm not, not sure about dirty politics, but obviously they will, what's the word, get desperate, urgent, Bucky. whatever. Um, but... <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we talked about the polls for a while, and it's that the polls... Well, the let's trend- talk about the polls, shall we? Yeah. Shall we talk about the polls? Talk about the polls, then. The TV One poll, even after the humongous GST off fruit gift that'll line our pockets with money, Labour in the 20s. Now, some say heading for a crushing defeat. Yeah. Tanked, in fact, one headline said. Look, I, I don't... I don't link that poll at all to the GST decision because people do not respond to immediate policy announcements, and unless they're really massive. But then if, if, if that, it's not, that indicates things are about to get a lot worse. Well, potentially, because what I think is that if you think back to when Chris Hipkins took over as leader of the Labor Party, OK, the previous poll, thinking, say, of the One News poll, um, Labor was on, on 33% when Jacinda Ardern. Actually, yeah. after he took over the leadership, the first poll after he took over the leadership, and maybe it was a bounce because of him, yeah. Labor went up to 38 but through the year, down to 36, 35, 33, now 29. 20, yeah. And I think it's largely <laughs> the flow-on effect of voters, A, being worried about the economy, as we've always talked in inflation, yeah. but also those multitude of ministerial scandals ah, also, that were going yes, to weigh down any government. They so, were, weren't they? They were going to weigh them down. Um, although... I have to say the announced petrol tax increase now has basically wiped out that GST saving. That wouldn't <laughs> that won't help either, will it? Yeah, and that, and that was takes it down to about what so one cent now. Over, difference? Oh, yeah, over three years God that's mighty. going up. But look, what I'd say is that you'll probably still find that not a huge amount of people are aware of all the details of, well, no, of, well, of all those policies. Well, well, no, because the PM partially blamed lack of media coverage on the GST policy for the crash. In fact, he said, well. It led all the news outlets, it led the newspapers. We even covered it. The PM says it's all all right, though, because many of us aren't tuned into the election yet. You know, that's the thing that we have in seven weeks, not tuned in. In fact, probably don't even know it's on. But he says we soon will, as he promises a vigorous campaign. I mean, I think he's right to the extent that the public... It's seven weeks out. What, do people not know? Well, they probably know. I think probably they know there's an election coming up. Although, you know, if you asked a few people... How could you miss it? Go to any street in the country. I know, but a lot of people do not take much attention of politics in the way that people in this place do um, until... Until much close to the election. So in that sense, he's right. But having said that, you know, the polls that they've got show that Labor have a real uphill struggle to to try and win enough vote that would put it in a position you heard to it potentially... Here first. Brent Edwards. Well, Labor's think... got an uphill struggle. Yep. So, so, I mean, he, but I think he's counting on being able to have a good campaign. I mean, what, what he'll be counting on is that 
they, that Labor runs a pretty much faultless campaign, because it would have to be pretty faultless, <laughs> and that that National, and, and particularly National's leader, Christopher Luxon, will stumble a bit, particularly when what happens, and that one thing that does happen in the, as you get closer and closer to election, and you're seeing it, is a lot more focus goes on what will the opposition parties do. Well, I'll tell you they, what they'll do. Uh, right now, the Nats, 13 new cancer drugs. Ooh, always a winner, that one. And I'm allowed to say that because I'm a survivor. Yes, please, Pharmac. And how do you pay for it? Well, we'll just bring that $5 cap prescription feedback that us who work obviously can afford. Fair enough. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's drawn a mixed response, that announcement. I mean, there are those, the critics, who say, OK, fair enough, but just fund Pharmac, give it more money, but don't direct it how it should spend it, that politicians should not be making clinical decisions on which drugs should be bought. And then there are those who have been obviously advocating for these particular drugs and um, who, who say it's great, finally, because Pharmac, they don't like Pharmac. But, it, yes. but others, including, I think, a former head of the Cancer Society, also saying that, It'll give big pharma, the big pharmaceutical companies, a lot of clout because they know how much money's available and that Pharmac won't be able to do as good a deal. Oh, who cares? Just get, just get the drugs in. Well, at what cost, though? Because that means then you don't get other drugs in. All right, I'll pay $6 for the prescription. Oh, that's well, good as long as it's capped. It's not much. All right, not all good news for the Nats, though, this week. Michael Woodhouse, too low on the list, packed a bit of a sad, gone, saying apparently he lost the diversity contest. So National lose a rather capable person. I thought he was rather capable. Why was he on the outer? Well, you know, obviously there is that diversity issue. Um, he was male. Um, and they're looking... No, to, he's denied that that but, had anything to do with it. Well, he talks about diversity. Thing. Well, what's, what's, what diversity does he talk to? It's the fact he's white then, so I, don't, I mean... Well, well, what do we mean when we talk about... He raised the diversity issue when he, he gave that interview. But, I mean, I think... He had been told, he said he'd been told early in the year that he was on the radar to be in Cabinet, but then obviously yep. he's fallen off the radar. Why? Um, well, Christopher Luxon hasn't really explained that properly, so, but presumably or they at not, all. Presumably he didn't have so much confidence in it, but when you look at that potential uh, National Act Cabinet, I mean, they have taken away someone who did have government experience. Correct. And so it, it then leaves the, that Cabinet looking pretty light on experience a criticism that they've made previously about the Labour cabinet. So, um, yeah, an interesting decision that he couldn't get a higher position because unlike other white male MPs who are well down the list, he doesn't have a winnable seat where those others do. That's right. So when you look at the diversity thing, actually, even when you look at the list, a lot of the people are pushed up the list to give it diversity probably will still miss out because people lower than them on the list, male, white males, are going to win their seats and therefore jump the queue. Um, now, Labor, because you know they haven't been raising a lot of money, really, compared to National, they've been raising a lot of money. But on the fundraising trail this week, 400000 in one week. That's with the help of Alan Clark, of course. They were way behind, so that'll help, won't it? Well, obviously, it'll help. They need money to run a campaign. And, and as you say, they are well, well behind, I think, what is it, seven to one in terms of what National's raising in terms against Labor. So, yeah. um, you know, 400000 in a week, I think National probably does that in an hour. So It just shows you the pulling power of, you know, Helen Clark, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think also um, the election's getting closer. So those people who presumably want to see a Labor government re-elected are suddenly thinking, gee... 
going to have to put our hands in our pockets and try and help them out in terms of um, being able to campaign. Speaking of the Campaign Act and the firing line for a bit of a change, controversial comments uh, from David Seymour are now questions over what looks like questionable candidates. Yeah, and I mean, and he's had to spend some time defending acts, um selection process and the way they vet candidates. He's had two or three candidates now who are, what, how should we describe it, COVID, COVID vaccine sceptics and what have you, and have made... Which, you know, that's fine, but they've, they've made some comments that, that go, I suppose, a bit beyond the pale. But then, of course, but as a leader, he's creating a lot of heat around this, you know, Guy Fawkes joke that yes. he made in reference to the Ministry for Pacific Peoples. And rather than letting it die, he, I mean, he's raised it in Parliament, asking the yes. Prime Minister questions about the Prime Minister's reaction to it, which you seem to think, look, you know, why don't you just say, hey... It was a joke, but I apologise. I can understand why maybe people took it the wrong way. Shouldn't have used that, you know. Do you think it's? Do you think there's any arrogance in it? And the reason I'm asking you that is because because he's doing so well in the polls, all of a sudden it's like, well, well I can say I, what I, want. I don't know about arrogance or whether he feels that actually, okay, he might be getting a bit of a battering from what he might see as the um, sort of socially liberal elite or what have you, but that in terms of support for ACT. The people who they're trying to get to, who have, you know, concerns about these issues uh, around race, that they they're liking it. So. Ah, uh, so he's sort of like doing what Winston does. Yeah. Every bit election of, year. But a dog whistling, I think. Right. Next week, uh, the house. Oh, the last week of the house sitting. That's it. Over. Final legislation. Final farewells for some. Any big losses? Do you think? People-wise. Well, you know. I don't, you know, everyone comes and goes, he can't. I mean, but there have been some interesting valedictories. And, I mean, talking about the actually the issue of race, I thought um, Todd Muller's valedictory this week was an interesting one. I mean, he obviously mm. talked about the mental health issues and, and, you know, that obviously was a very personal um, story for him. But but on race and, and the treaty issues, he made the point that for a long time, that as he took it, talked about it, the two great tribes of New Zealand politics, National and Labour, had generally had an agreement around the treaty and around settling treaty grievances and what have you, but he had this fear that things were getting much more polarised, the political debate was getting more toxic. Um, and and he said he believed in the one person, one vote, but he said that didn't mean you couldn't look at, well, how do you ensure representation for those groups? And I think specifically, I think, really referencing Māori, who might feel that, feel that underrepresented. Um, and, he, you know, he finished with this plea, actually, for, for National and Labor to sort of kind of work together to try and get the debate back to a more civil discourse. So given some of the stuff that's happening, and be honest, I think he's got that chance of that happening in the next seven weeks up to the election. But who knows, maybe after the election, you know, tensions will simmer down a bit and, you know. Yeah, no. That is Beehive <laughs> election banter. And let's hope that in some small way that we have enlightened you to the fact there is, in fact, an election very, 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 very soon. But as the PM has implied, many of us weren't tuned in. We can only hope you have now finally tuned in. We also hope we can enlighten you more next week. Thank you for taking the time. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Employment law is again a significant area of debate heading into the formal election campaign, with National and ACT pledging to dump fair pay agreements if they form the next government. 
I'm joined by Business New Zealand's Employment Relations Policy Manager, Paul Mackay, and the Council of Trade Unions Economist, Craig Rennie. So, fair pay agreements. It, you know, that, that seems to be mm-hmm. the biggest issue on, the, I guess, the, the sort of this front. National Act will dump them. If, if Labor mm-hmm. forms the next government, they'll continue. Um, is it a good idea to dump them? Well, we've never been in favour of them in the first place, um, particularly for small businesses. They they are likely to prove, if history tells us anything from the pre-1990 period, small businesses are the ones that get hit the hardest when everything's imposed. Uh, and they are going to be imposed fairly, fairly uh, stringently across whole whole either the whole nation or at least district levels, that's pretty onerous on small business and we'd, uh, we'd be very, very happy to see them go. That's not to say we don't support looking after low paid areas. We'd certainly want to look at ways of how you help them, but the way that they're doing it through fair pay agreements, we don't like at all. Well, I mean, you know, this, the, the evidence from overseas is quite clear that those countries that have national award systems like Australia not only have um, higher wages, they also have higher levels of productivity, higher levels of output and stronger economies. Um, they have higher levels of training um, and they have better health and safety records. Um, the national award system, which we used to have in New Zealand, um, protected exactly those workers that we're talking about, those on low pay um, and those in, in vulnerable positions. Um, where we, we think this is a very unfortunate conversation. Um, you know, it, you're absolutely right, it is one of the top issues inside employment relations. It shouldn't be. Creating minimum standards, and that's what they are, minimum standards, not universal standards, but minimum standards across sectors and industries, allows firms to compete on research, on quality, on innovation, rather than on just pushing wages down. And so for us, it's quite straightforward. Fair pay agreements are a clear way of delivering a stronger economy in the future. So just remind me, which what fair pay agreements are being or negotiated mm. or have been initiated so far? Well, it's not negotiated as such. Uh, there are six... Uh, applications uh, uh, that have been approved and one that's waiting. Mm. Um, they cover the hospitality sector, the food and grocery sector, or the soup, groceries and supermarkets, uh, early childhood, uh, cleaners, uh, bus drivers. Um, I think I've got ECE the one. workers. Yeah, uh, you know, early childhood, uh, and then there's one for watersiders that's currently in the in the yes. assessment process. So there's not many at this stage. Our concern, though, is that the government set out to focus on low-paid groups, uh, and that's not true of all of those claims. That's also a worry for us that the. Uh, the system allows for fair pay agreements everywhere, not just low paid. And we think so. They're, they're, they're far too broadly focused. They need to be much better focused. And we think there are other ways of doing it than, than this. Workers themselves need to actually yeah. organise for a fair pay agreement. And we've, the, where we've seen the greatest level of organisation for fair pay agreements is in precisely those areas. And bus drivers are a great example of a workforce that's seen their terms and conditions being continuously eroded over 30 years. Um, their, their voice in those negotiations being eroded. Um, and that's why they've campaigned for a fair pay agreement. Yes, the law does permit um, economists to have a fair pay agreement. It's not likely to happen anytime soon. Um, and so we have, um, you know, we can see the workforces that are coming through are exactly the workforces that we want. Those where they're in low pay, they're in, in insecure work, and where their terms and conditions, um, the workers don't have adequate voice in helping to set. Yeah. And uh, well, a good example of, of how we look at this is say the cleaners, for instance, where there's already a MECA, a multi-employer collective agreement done voluntarily with all of the big companies. Uh, there's, a, there's a MECA for cleaners in the hospitals mm. area. The people who won't be covered are those that's part of the cleaning sector who are contractors because fair pay agreements won't 
cover them, and they are in fact uh, where the finger gets pointed most often in terms of some of the problems. So which, is, which is exactly the reason why contractors should be inside the fair pay agreement system. Would be delighted if Business New Zealand wanted to support that um, yeah. as a position. You, you talk about you don't disagree with it, perhaps focusing on low paid workers. So what changes would work? For business New Zealand, then. no, we are we are okay with the idea that low-paid workers deserve to be examined more carefully and, and and an effective solution found. But we don't believe that a system such as fair pay agreements, where uh, the employer per se gets no say at all, is the mechanism to do it. We think that an industry-led approach to looking at the issues is one that would work better. A voluntary approach where people are actually willing to engage rather than having a an outcome that they may not have participated in. But wouldn't that be an opt-out for? You know, in inverted commas, the bad employers that you know people recognise exist, but bring down all of those other employers. Not necessarily at all. If you if you if you develop an approach which is focused on the areas of, of known and agreed concern, then you don't provide uh, back doors immediately for everybody because those, if that is an area of concern, you don't want bad employers escaping. But doing it in such a way that everybody does gets the, gets an outcome they have not necessarily participated in, particularly employers and particularly small employers are least likely to have a voice at the table. They're the ones who really, really need the help. That's where we should focus. Well, uh, let me just come on to that because I think there's a, there's a couple of misapprehensions there. Uh, one of which is that you know um, we don't want the, we don't want them um, uh, in we want them in those areas where we have bad employers, but we want an opt out system. The reason we don't we shouldn't have an opt out system is because we have bad employers yeah. in those areas, and there are real challenges with the employers in those areas. We want to make sure that we're protecting the most vulnerable workers in those areas, yeah. which are exactly those who would be uh, where the employers would opt out of yeah. that system. Yeah. Um, so that's why we have a system where we arrange it by occupation or by industry, because that way we make sure that the, no one can take a free ride. Nobody can find a way to actually gain competitive advantage by not following the rules that the other employers have agreed to set on minimum terms. And again, I can't stress this enough, minimum terms, not universal terms. You won't be paid the same as, your, as the employee next to you. You can still argue for a pay rise. You can still do whatever you want. It's just setting the minimum terms to avoid exploitation in that sector or that industry. Yeah, and, and I don't just simply observe that, that, yes, there are bad employers, there are bad employees. Mm. They are a minority of the overall workforce, both employers and employees. And yet we're setting up a system that assumes, effectively assumes that everybody's bad. I mean, that doesn't make logical sense. We should be looking at supporting those who are doing the right thing, particularly the majority who are just puddling on, getting on with work, trying to survive, make, make ends meet, pay the bills. Uh, they're not doing anything wrong but they shouldn't be circumscribed by those or by, by a reaction to those that have done something wrong. We're setting up a system that avoids the race to the bottom in that space, which we've seen in many of those sectors, in security, in cleaning, in bus driving and elsewhere. Um, and it's it's exactly to prevent that race to the bottom that we need um, a, a fair pay agreement which operates across the sector or across the industry. So if there's a change of government, clearly they're going to be drop what what does that mean for the are one of those are some of those in process that they they just won't they won't go through at all well given the actual mechanical process of putting one together it's not an easy process there is a lot of a lot of detail if you go back to pre-1990 in the hospitality sector there were over 70 different national and district level documents that if you translate those into today's term in one document you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of detail and documents wages across districts and so on that will take a long time if, if we look at pay equity settlements of which there are about 20 something claims since the Equal Pay Act came in they've taken between 80 
18 months and three years to settle, and they're mm. easier than fair pay agreements. So, and there's no experience in this country anymore. People who are around in 1990 aren't, aren't in business today doing these sorts of things. So there's a learning process. There will be mistakes made. There will be time taken to figure things out. So no, I personally don't believe we will see a fair pay agreement before the election. And so if they get dumped then, Craig, what for the CTU? I mean, will you continue to campaign for them and get to come Absolutely. back? What? Absolutely. I mean, and the reason we'll campaign for them is not because, you know, we're particularly ideologically, you know, attracted to them. It's because they make sense. It's because they work. They make actually life easier um, for both employers and employees. They provide certainty for employees in terms of wages, um, in terms of the maximum number of hours they can work on certain types of contract. Um, means that they can prevent they can prevent from being exploited um, by, by employers. So they work because, we want them because they work and because they've been shown to work overseas and that's why we would see regardless of who's in office um, you know post October the 14th we want to work with them to make sure that we're delivering the protection that fair pay agreements um, offer in, in, in New Zealand. As something of a student of history if I go back looking back over the old system pre-1990 in the early 70s through right through to the 1990s awards delivered less and less they just they, they literally weren't delivering and we saw the highest levels of industrial action New Zealand has ever seen in the hundred years we had awards and that was because workers were frustrated the system wasn't delivering this system the one we have now with fair pay agreements looks awfully like what we used to have Every bit of it looks similar. So what's going to change? I don't well, think much is going to change. That, except, except, except for the fact that you can't <laughs> strike for a fair pay agreement and you can't strike over a fair pay agreement's terms and conditions. And you couldn't strike for awards. Uh, yeah. So people are bailed out of the award system and began to bargain at the enterprise level where you could strike. And the symptoms and the signals and the system seem to be remarkably similar this time round. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that we won't see a similar result. I'm, I'm not convinced that we're likely to see a new, um, a new winter of industrial discontent. Um, what we are likely to see is actually negotiations for wages and terms and conditions and everything from training and holidays and leave actually being made a lot easier because there is a minimum agreement across the industry or sector. We might leave you guys to agree to disagree. <laughs> Another issue which has come up, actually, the ACT Party proposing in its policy around personal grievances and um, to um, essentially remove the ability for employees to take cases where there's been a breach of procedure or whatever by the employer um, to speed up the process for how they're dealt with. What, what are your thoughts on that? Does the, does the personal grievance process need to be sorted out? Well, it, it certainly needs sorting in, in a number of areas because it's a long-standing frustration across the successive governments, the, 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 the issue of, fair pay, of, of um, personal grievances. One of the problems is the time taken to get a judgment and, and it is promising to turn them around very, very quickly. I mean, we all agree that justice denied is just, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, but there's equally a risk that if, if, if judgments are given under time pressure that they may in fact not be the best judgment that they could be. So we're a bit cautious about simply speeding up the time for judgments. There may be a lot of a bit of a reality check there. And of course, uh, if there are fair pay agreement disputes, they will involve three employment relations members at the, at the same time. So there will be constraints on what they can hear elsewhere. So there's an issue on time. Where we really feel for uh, both employers and employees is um, the, the complexities of trying to get both the process right as well as the, the, substant the substantive arguments, the balance between those really does need to be looked at again and we'd support Act's view on, on that. The other area is, uh, again, the concern for both unions and employers, in my experience, is that uh, too often an employee will take a grievance 
uh, particularly for small business, it's expensive, and so they'll typically end up settling in mediation, even if they were substantively right, but simply because the, because the overall cost of the process is driving them to a effectively paying go away money. That's not fair on the employee. It's not just for the employer, uh, and frequently it's making money for the advocate who is clipping the ticket on the way uh, in, a, in a system which which really ought not to deal with it that way. So we need to look at those sorts of things. I think, um, you know, uh, certainly we would agree that the current system is there have been log jams in the system and there have been delays um, in the system. But if you write a piece of employment relations um, policy, which the um, Employers and Manufacturers Association say has gone too far, um, then you've probably gone a little bit too far on that side. Um, there are plenty of different ways in which we can address this problem, one of which is actually to properly resource the ERA. Um, it's an organisation that's been under-resourced for years, um, which has been under increasing pressure. Um, and as a consequence, you know, you can tackle that one way. You can you can force outcomes out of it by saying you have 28 days to deliver an outcome or a certain amount of time to deliver an outcome. Um, or you can make sure that it's got the resources necessary to be able to deal with um, the cases in front of it in a timely fashion. And I think that's certainly where the CTU would like to go. On the inability to reinstate um, in terms of, uh, um, you know, that's that really does seem to be taking tools away from the ERA, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily use, um, you know, um, uh, willy-nilly, um, and, and it uses as part of its overall judgment. Taking those away without anything on the other side, does that simply mean that the, the costs to the employee in terms of any potential payment then rise? Um, over what kind of period of damages are we now talking? Because reinstatement can't occur. Um, there's a lot which seems to be a little bit unthought through, um, as part of ACT's proposals. Um, and I guess finally, just, you know, as, as, as my colleague has, has, has highlighted, um, you know, we all want a better situation for being able to, to hear cases at the ERA for making sure there's a balance um, in that and also for it not taking up large amounts of money and advocates taking some of that cash. Um, what we would say is that the best way of doing that is making sure that the ERA is properly funded, is that it's properly resourced to do its job and it can hear cases in a timely fashion. I certainly support the idea about resourcing. Well, on the reinstatement front, um, we're certainly not advocating that reinstatement never be an option. It's, it is an option. It's always an option. Mm. But I think there needs to be a better balance and rather than having it as the primary remedy. In other words, this is where you go first. It should be a, a on the basis that there is a, a, a strong likelihood that is a conducive environment to going back because often the environment is toxic. And simply saying you're going back to the, to the, to the office may be bad for both. So, so justice... Uh, proper justice would have a good look at whether or not there's a benefit for both in going back or whether or not, as, as Craig has alluded, whether or not there's some balance in the, in the outcome in terms of remedies. So that needs to be looked at. Um, in terms of process, uh, one of the things we'd like to see is, is, is more recognition that process should not be the final determining factor. It's not now, but it's very vague. What we'd see is is, is greater clarity that that process or or a, or a slip up in process should not overturn a otherwise just result, uh, unless of course that process is material to the substantive issue. But uh, there's a, there's a need to tweak that to get some better balance. There does seem to be a little bit in the in in the in the argument from ACT that many of the things that they're complaining about are actually already dealt with via the ERA and in, and in many of its judgments, and it may well be just simply that it's about making those clearer. Um, rather than rather than attempting to uh, um, a reform fundamentally mm. something that where actually it's a resourcing problem rather than a reform problem. Yeah. Right, just quickly to sum up, I guess what we've mm. talked about. Are there any other issues you think that need to be resolved to to make the employment relationship better to make? 
Well, the, the, the best employment relationship is where there's open dialogue, free, free and open dialogue without kind of uh, secrets and the like between employers and workers. So, so uh, anything that can be done to improve the internal relationships, the working relationships, is worth doing. Uh, exactly what that would look like is, is to be discussed, would, would need to be discussed. But that's the sort of thing that produces success because a willing and engaged workforce is where you get your results. And again, we wouldn't disagree. You know, any time we have a a, a, a proactive and a, and, a, and a positive conversation with em, with employers, these tend to be happier workplaces, more productive workplaces, and workplaces that are better for the economy. Um, what I would say there's one area where um, you know being able to get a little bit more um, uh, um, progress, which would be in the contracting space and the contractor space and in contracting reform. Um, we've seen that um, put on the on the policy back burner. Um, as part of the re- review of overall policies recently. Um, and we, we don't want to see that slip away because there's a really important piece of work there about reforming uh, our contracting um, in New Zealand and making sure that it's actually working for everyone in the way in which it, it, it needs to for both employees um, and contractors. Yeah. Craig Rennie and Paul Mackay, thank you for your time. About seven months after becoming Prime Minister, Labour leader Chris Hipkins is about to contest an election campaign in an effort to keep his job. He joins me now. I mean, it's been a pretty, um, I suppose, turbulent seven months. You must be incredibly frustrated by the series of ministerial mishaps you've had to deal with. Well, as Prime Minister, you don't always get to determine, you know, what you want to be focused on. You have to actually respond to the events in front of you. A lot of those issues um, actually had their origins well before I became Prime Minister. I was ultimately left, you know, carrying the can and had to had to deal with those. Um, I'm looking forward to getting on the campaign trail, though, because that will be more of an opportunity for me to set out, you know, what I want to achieve in the job. Um, I acknowledge it's been a really difficult three years for New Zealanders. This has been a really tough term of government. You know, when you think about where we started with, you know, COVID lockdowns and restrictions to through to the present day, it's been a pretty bumpy ride. And so now we've got an opportunity to really focus on the future and say, OK, you know, what are the things that Labor wants to, to do now um, as we, you know, we've got through that COVID period? We've, we've got through some turmoil. What's next? But I guess that's the point, though, isn't it? It has been a, a tough time, and then, of course, economically, it's a tough year. I mean, the last thing you needed as a government seeking re-election was for ministers to fall, you know, fall off the rails. Oh, absolutely. Look, it's very frustrating, but um, we've dealt with those issues. So I've moved on, um, and I'm very, very focused on the fact that you know, we need to set out the, a compelling vision for the future. Been notable uh, since you became prime minister. You seem to have put a real effort into um, communicating with the business community, um, meeting with them. Uh, what 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 have you been trying to do there in terms of, I guess, winning their support or? Look, I acknowledge whenever I go into a boardroom or a room full of business leaders, there's not many votes in that room for me. Um, but what is important, it's about good governance, what is important is that the government has a good open dialogue with the business community. Because if we look at our objectives for workers, you know, we want to create better, high-paying jobs that are going to allow New Zealanders who are working hard to get ahead. We have to work in conjunction with the business community to achieve those things. But, I mean, I guess, as you say, you're not likely to get their votes. And on the other side, you probably seem to get more criticism almost from what you might consider more traditional Labour supporters for not doing enough 
I think if you look at some of the suspicion that's existed from the business community over some of our key initiatives that have, have actually been designed to improve the lot of working New Zealanders, I think much of that can be overcome. So when I talk to business leaders about fair pay agreements, for example, I don't think our business community want to be in a race to the bottom where they're competing with each other on the basis of who can pay their staff less. And that's actually one of the tools that fair, you know, fair pay agreements are a tool to stop that from happening. And so uh, when I talk to them about what we're trying to achieve and why we've put fair pay agreements in place, it's a policy, it's a policy that I'm very supportive of and you know, want to see that through to fruition. Actually getting more understanding helps. Um, I think a lot of the suspicion that's out there can be overcome. I mean, but in that sense, as I say, some of your, what you might consider traditional Labour supporters, seem disappointed that Labour hasn't done enough in terms of, I suppose, you know, one of the key things was, would have been over tax, people wanting a wealth tax or a capital gains tax. I mean, how do you respond to them? Well, if we take tax as an, as an example, um, it, on the wealth tax, that's a principled decision by me, and on the capital gains tax, it's more of a pragmatic one. So if I take each of those in turn, on a wealth tax, we did look at a wealth tax. In reality, um, at a principled level, I don't think a wealth tax would work. Wealth is very mobile. If, um, as the Treasury was suggesting, I think it was about 18% of the wealth in question left the country, that's billions of dollars flowing out of the country. That will have an economic impact for New Zealand. That will have an impact on the um, on, on the employment market. It'll have an impact on our economy. Um, and I don't think that that's a risk that was worth taking. I also think that there's some fairness issues around taxing people for unrealised gains. So if you take the mum and dad farmer who's farming is worth more than $10 million, you'd actually be taxing them on, on an asset. You'd be taking a share of their asset each year when they're not realising that. And so I, I think we, you know, I looked at it closely and I just don't think that a wealth tax stacks up. In terms of a capital gains tax, there is a case for looking at that in New Zealand. But in reality, unless there is a bipartisan consensus about that, there is no point in doing it. Because a capital gains tax takes 10 years or more before you actually start to see it working effectively as intended. Because you wouldn't apply it retrospectively. So any government introducing it... You, you know, it's going to be 10 years before a future government really kind of sees the revenue that would justify it. So if there's a, a disagreement across the House, which there is, um, then there's no point in proceeding with a, a capital gains tax. Because that all seems to get mixed up in the argument about who wants to tax more. So obviously the National Party will accuse Labor of being tax, tax, tax. I mean, is it, do you think we need to have a debate where we could perhaps agree on the structure of the tax system? And then the political parties could argue, well, after that, how much would they take? Well, that's certainly what we were attempting to do um, with the Tax Working Group report. The National Party took the view that all taxes you know, are terrible and that we should be aiming to reduce all taxes. In reality, taxes are what we have to do. We have to generate revenue from tax to pay for all of the things that New Zealanders want, whether that's health, education, transport infrastructure. You know, Somehow we have to pay for all of those things. The money doesn't, doesn't appear out of nowhere. Um, could the tax system be fair? Yes, of course it could. Um, could we have less reliance on income? tax from lower income New Zealanders. There are certainly ways of considering that, but um, many of those require a much longer run-up than a three-year term of Parliament is ever going to give a government. Um, I think it would be great if we could reach a consensus on the fact that you know there is infinite room for improvement in our tax system. But 
lurching tax policy around from one government to the next isn't actually going to be in New Zealand's overall best interests. But don't we end up as a result, though, with sort of tinkering? And if you like, I mean, taking GST off fruit and vegetables, isn't that tinkering rather than... It's something, it's a practical measure that's going to make a difference for New Zealanders on a day-to-day basis at the moment when the price of fruit and veg is going up um, and they're struggling to, you know, make ends meet. You talked about um, with the election campaign you can so, show what you would do as Prime Minister. So, I mean, are we, can we expect some more significant policy announcements between now and the election? I think there'll be two things that you'll see from us. One will be the vision that I have for the country, and I'll be setting out more about what I want to achieve in my time in the job. The second thing that you'll see is you will see a range of additional relatively targeted measures to support the country through the challenges that we face at the moment. But I've been very clear, this won't be a big spending election for the Labour Party. We're not in the position as a country to be able to sustain that. Those parties who are offering big billion dollar, you know, multi-billion dollar tax cuts need to be upfront with New Zealanders about where they're going to pay, how they're going to pay for that. Because the country simply doesn't have billions of dollars available um, to throw away on those sorts of things at the moment. And so I've been pretty clear, our campaign will be a relatively modest one. Um, It will be about consolidating on the gains we've made over the last six years and painting a direction forward so that as we do get more choices, as the economy rebounds, as government revenue rebounds, which will happen, um, people will see what our priorities are. But in terms of the you know specific prom- promises we're putting before the electorate at this election, they'll be quite modest. Will the campaign, is it going to be a contest of ideas or is it going to be, look say just looking at the two major parties, is it going to be a contest of personalities between you and Christopher Luxon? I hope that ideas will be a very prominent part of the campaign. That's what election campaigns should be about. And there's clearly looking at the polls no matter what the result, there's going to be a, a, a change of government because clearly Labor's not going to govern as a single-party majority. Do you accept that? Well, nobody's yeah. voted yet. Yeah. Um, look, I acknowledge that, um, you know, and, and opinion polls are only a snapshot in time of the 1,000 or so people who got polled. Um, but, you know, they, they give a trend, and the trend has been that, you know, the, the government is needs to sharpen its focus, and that's exactly what we'll be doing. Um, I think, um, you know, it... it, it it's a matter of fact to say that the Labour Party having a majority in Parliament um, is a is an unusual outcome in an MMP environment. It's more usual for parties to be working together um, to form government, and I suspect that's what we're going to see after the election. And I mean, was that? I suppose it's going back before you were Prime Minister, but part of the reason why an arrangement was reached with the Green Party, even though Labour didn't need the Green Party, I mean that continues a relationship, presumably. Yeah, we've worked very constructively with the Greens over the last six years, both as part of this government, uh, which was a Labour government, and as part of the coalition government previously. And how you've talked about that you're going to make it clear before the election what your preferred options are. I mean, how how are you going to do that? Will you be naming parties? Will Will you be talking about a form of government you would like to see? What... Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'll set some more thinking out around that in the next little while. That will include, you know, who we could work with, who we um, would prefer to work with, um, whether there are any no-go zones for us, but also a bit more about, you know, how we like to work with our support partners. I mean, we talked about the polls, and we know the trend in the polls at the moment, you know, probably not great for Labour at the moment. What's your expectation of the campaign, of being able to kind of convince voters to to come back, I suppose, to Labour in terms of 
what, what the polls are showing. A lot of Kiwis aren't switched on to the campaign yet. You know, they're not really paying a lot of attention to politics. Um, they'll start to pay more attention as we get closer to the election um, and as the campaign, you know, really starts to warm up. I think we've only really kind of had um, a few weeks now where people are starting to switch on to the campaign. And so, um, you know, we've got everything to go out there and campaign for. Chris Hipkins, thank you for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Voters might want to consider likely coalition arrangements when they vote at the October 14 election. To talk about that, I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. And Brent, why should voters be bothered about post-election deal-making at this point? Well... I guess, I mean, it's up to voters, but you think they might want to take it into account in the sense that you can vote for the party of your choice and you can see what that party's policy agenda is, what their manifesto is, but that party, and say if we take, particularly take the major parties, National and Labour, they're going to have to make concessions if either are in a position to form a government. They're going to have to make concessions to get the support of, I guess, on Labor's part, the Green Party and Te Party Māori, and on National's part, from ACT and possibly New Zealand First. So voters might want to look at um, well, what policies might be shifting around. And again, those who are voting for the minor parties also will obviously see their policy prescription, but maybe think how much of it will get through in terms of a, a post-election negotiation. So is, is there a sense that it's looking different this time round than it has in the past? Look, yeah, I mean, a difference in the sense that I think that after this election, um, we'll definitely have a change of government. Now, I mean that even if Labor and the polls don't make it look likely, but even if Labor were in a position to form a government, it would be a very different government to the one that we've had for the past three years, because Labor would very much rely on the Green Party and Te Party Māori. Now, so I think for the first time, if that was the case, as unlikely as it might look from the polls, it would be the first time, I think, that the Green Party has had real leverage and influence in government um, because, you know, they would clearly have quite a strong voice. And on the other side, for National, if National is the party which, you know, from the polls looks more likely that, that leads the next government, then I think the ACT Party would probably have more leverage than it's ever had in the past in terms of really sort of pushing that government. Unless, of course, they fall short of 50% and they need Winston Peters. Then, well, anything <laughs> could <bit>. happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we could end up with either the most sort of left-leaning government we've had and possibly ever or the most right-leaning government, economically speaking, that we've had in many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because clearly um, a, a National Act government, you kind of expect at the very least, for instance, I mean, National is promising tax cuts, but Act is promising much bolder tax cuts. So you would tend to think that if there were a National Act government, they would go a bit further down the path of, of tax cuts than perhaps National would do just on its own. And the same when it comes to um, perhaps, you know, deregulation and, and that kind of thing. Um, that it would, it would go further 
than a, a national government, perhaps that you know could do it all on its own. And and equally, yeah, on the other side, Labor, the Green Party, and Te Party Māori, very very strong. Obviously, the Green Party very strong on climate change policies, but both also really pushing for more to be done around the issues around poverty. You know, the pressure will go back over a wealth tax, capital gains tax. I mean. Chris Hipkins as leader of the Labor Party and Prime Minister's ruled that out, but um, you might see a little bit more movement in those sorts of areas than you would otherwise think if you had a, a Labor-led government where Labor was very much the dominant party. So at this stage of the game then, what should the parties be saying when, when they're asked about p- potential coalition discussions? Well, it is a difficult one for them because, you know, they want to push their own prescription, their own policy prescriptions, all of the parties, whether it's the major parties or the minor parties. So if they start to talk about, oh, well, we'll give away this or give away that, then hold it, what's your policy then? So, so, I mean, their general line is they won't engage in negotiations before the election. I mean, Chris Hipkins has said that in the next week or so he will lay out which parties Labor is prepared to work for work with, which parties it would most like to work with, and also he said that he would talk about the kind of arrangement they'd like to have. But I don't think they'll lay out any kind of, oh, we'd be prepared to give up this policy or that policy is our bottom line. Um, so so really it's left to voters. If, 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 if they're thinking about what a likely government might be, it's, up, it's going to be left up to them to look at some of these policies and kind of give a consideration to think what do they think would give and, you know, in ter- determining. And, I mean, one of the things is, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there might be, the, you know, what we call those centrist voters. We don't really quite know how to define them, but those people who can vote either Labour, National. Now, how will they feel if they look at a Labour-led government with a the, with the strong Greens influence? Might that deter them voting Labour and push them into National? But then maybe they look at National and think, oh, act, they're going to go too far that way. So, you know, all those things will be in consideration. And, and just how I think the way some of those floating voters go, based on perhaps their consideration of those issues, you know, you know, could could have quite an influence on the, the look and substance, substance of the next government. Going to be an interesting election. Thanks for coming in, Brent Edwards. Thanks, Maria. NBR columnist Bridget Morton thinks Labour Party strategists will be questioning the party's policy announcements as they watch its support slide in the polls. She joins me now. So I know I think you're kind of um, harking to the most recent one news poll, which showed Labour on 29 percent and. So you're kind of saying that that shows their announcements on fresh fruit and veggies and um, the roading announcement, uh, the paid parental, that they're just not getting through to voters and voters aren't liking them because they're... Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things happening there in terms of you look at polls for the trends, not just for that number. And I think, you know, people talk about parties going under 30% as a big thing. But actually, I think the most concerning thing is was the fact that in that particular poll, they dropped four percentage points, which is quite a lot. And you reflect on that, given that that poll was out um, in the field and the time in which they made multiple announcements last week that were meant to be, on the face of it, quite populist. And that seemed to either get no cut through or people actually reacted badly to them and moved their support elsewhere. I guess, I just wonder though whether actually, because I know a lot of political journalists, they do a poll and they say, look, this happened yesterday and the poll was taken today and look, oh, it's terrible. But I'm just wondering whether people actually, 
my experience, frankly, is they don't respond that quickly to announcements to then reflect it in the poll. And I'm just wondering if it's more just the fact that the government's had a terrible year. <laughs> or, right, and if you look at all those ministerial mishaps, slowly but surely that's just eroded that support that they had from the beginning of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, forms that sort of degree of mistrust or lack of credibility they had in making a number of those announcements last week. The problem is that you look at some of those individual ones. So GST has to be the biggest mm. one. You know, it polled really well in focus groups. It was meant to be wildly popular. It seemed to fall super flat. And that was the kind of predictions of everyone in the couple of days, I think, after the announcement. But that's really been reflected in the poll as well. I think, you know, to your point, though, about the fact that it's not just about what has happened while the poll has been in the field, because it's also, I think, you look at what's happened with Hipkins' numbers and the fact that he is no longer, you know, he's slid quite considerably over a trend as most favourable PM, and he's sitting basically peg with peg with Luxon at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to that, but because it's interesting around how they poll on issues. And I, if I think back to the National Party when it was in government, and it's mixed ownership model, that it campaigned on up to what was the 2014 election, wasn't it, I think? Not yeah. sure. Yeah, or 20, I think it was. But all the polls showed that there was widespread public opposition to it, yet it made no difference to the vote. National got a really good vote. I mean, so sometimes, you know, it's how you read, a, sometimes people will say they don't like a policy, but that doesn't mean they're going to vote against the party that's promoting it, or that they say they like a policy that doesn't mean they'll vote for the party that's promoting that policy, does oh, it? I totally agree. I think you've got very few single-issue voters, people that will change their vote entirely on one thing and one thing only. So most people do have a you know accumulation of many things. But last week you actually saw sort of you know a bit for everyone. You know there was some roading, paid parental leave, GST. You know there was actually some discussions about the Kermadec uh, um, Marine Sanctuary. There was a lot happening last week, and none of it seems to have actually had a positive impact for Labour. I think the operative word you used was a bit. And that, isn't that the problem? <laughs> I mean, and I think, and the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, have kind of made this clear there's going to be no massive spend up, they don't have the money. And so they're doing little bits. And then on its own, each little bit really isn't going to be enough, is it, to really shift voters? Yeah, well, maybe this is an indication about the fact that voters are not going to vote really on policy at all. And you can see a lot of that policy and sort of like go through there in my column about the fact that many of the policies were sort of neutralising what had come from national so that there wasn't actually going to be that much difference between the two of them when people came to vote. So we're coming down to them perhaps in... Uh, an election that's much more about trust or about credibility, and it'd be really interesting to see how Hipkins tries and you know gets that back on board. I mean, in terms of that, you know, how Hipkins has preferred Prime Minister and, and against Christopher Luxon, and that's narrowed right up. Where at one point Chris Hipkins was, you know, I think well ahead, wasn't he? But is that is that a reflection on Chris Hipkins? personally, or more on all of the stuff that's gone wrong for the government and therefore it ends up being heaped back on him as Prime Minister? Well, he's Prime Minister. He's yep. the face of the government. We know that he makes a lot of calls, you know, that he makes them unilaterally. Ultimately, 
that is his accountability. But, to say but, that the government is somewhat different to the Prime Minister, I don't think you can. And we know a lot of the success of Labour previously was due to the Prime Minister Adern. So I think that you, know, you have to look at the inverse of that, and that has to say that Hipkins has not been able to maintain that popularity that she had. Yeah, but I, I'm just thinking back to these all of these ministerial mishaps, for want of a better word, that weren't his responsibility, but then he had to deal with, I guess, and you can question whether he dealt with them initially well or not. And I'm wondering whether that's, you know, dented it. You know, because what would be, if none of that had happened, if Stuart Nash had been a good boy, if Michael Wood, if, you know, if Kerry Tupper Allen, all of, if they were still there and no, do you think the polls would be as dismal for Labour? It's hard to know. I think without a doubt, as I say, that all kind of adds into it. But ultimately, people, I think, are turning their minds to, well, you know, in a couple of months' time, I've got to start thinking about who I think is actually going to be better for me and my family. And nothing last week that Labor did seems to have cut through as something that actually is going to put households in a better place than they are now. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.